Jesus came, he suffered, he died, he rose again on the third day, and he's coming back for his church, amen? Amen. And we're to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19, Luke 19, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 28 to 44, and the subject matter will be God's redeeming purpose. God's redeeming purpose. Now, folks, let me go ahead and give you a takeaway for today, okay? We pay dearly. We pay dearly when we do things our way instead of God's way. That's a takeaway from this text right here. We pay dearly. When we do things our way instead of God's way. Begin reading with me verse 28. Luke says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you. Where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Lord, we ask you today that through the power of your Spirit, you would speak to our hearts. Lord, teach us your word and what you are trying to say to your church. And we pray that all hearts and eyes and minds would be drawn to the Lord Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. God's redeeming purpose. Folks, today is what is referred to as Palm Sunday. 
Palm Sunday describes that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and the crowds were shouting in celebration and they were laying their cloaks and their palm branches before the pathway of the Lord Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, all of the Gospels contain this account. It's important for all of the Gospel writers to show us that Jesus is officially being presented to Israel as their rightful king. But to also show that they are going to reject their king. It makes me think of the words of the Apostle John in uh, John chapter 1 verse 11 says that Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. You see, Jesus did not act the way that they thought he would act once he entered the city. They were expecting an immediate kingdom to be set up. And him to establish the throne of David right then and there. Now God's redeeming purpose on the other hand was that he had come to give them a bigger kind of salvation. God had bigger things in mind. Jesus came in his first advent to be the suffering servant that Isaiah had told them about. Now they couldn't see that at the moment. They couldn't accept that at the moment. And so by the end of the week, at the beginning of the week, they were crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But by the end of the week, they were crying, crucify him, crucify him. Now granted, it might have been two different crowds. Probably the first crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord was not only the disciples of Jesus, but also the pilgrims that had come with him from Galilee. And then the crowd by the end of the week shouting, Crucify him, crucify him, was probably the majority, the residents of Jerusalem. But both crowds had terrible misunderstandings of what Jesus was supposed to do. He wasn't going to act according to their expectations. And because of that, they missed out on what he truly came to do. Now, each gospel writer has different nuances that he wants to communicate to us about the day's events. Matthew and Mark, for example, tell us about the crowds cutting branches and lying the branches on the road in the pathway of Jesus. John fills in the details that it was palm branches which were a symbol of peace. Luke's account is perhaps the most complete. Luke records for us how the religious leaders told Jesus that he needed to rebuke the people and make them stop saying and doing what it was that they were saying and doing. Luke alone also tells us Jesus' reaction when he first caught a glimpse of the city of Jerusalem as he was descending the Mount of Olives. 
Now, Palm Sunday is the first day of Passion Week on the religious calendar. Passion Week refers to the week of suffering by Jesus, which of course ended with the trial of Jesus and the rejection of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, a lot of people ask me, you know, sometimes folks say that pastors answer questions nobody's asking. Folks have asked me before, though, Pastor, do do we know when this was? Do we have a date? Do we know what time of the year it was? Do we know the day that it was? Do we know how old the Lord Jesus was? I know that we assume that Jesus was 33 years of age. But let me say to you, uh, virtually no New Testament scholar believes that. The church father Irenaeus had an opinion on that. Now, let me say that I think that Irenaeus was wrong. Normally, Irenaeus is a very reliable source. And he was close to the events. You see, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who in turn was a disciple of the apostle John. And so Irenaeus, in that sense, has a very close connection to the time of the apostles. He's only one generation removed from the time of the apostles. Irenaeus says that Jesus was 50 years old. Now we know that's very unlikely. You see, the last time that Caiaphas and Pilate served together was 36 AD. And both men show up as leaders at the trial of Jesus. Caiaphas being the high priest and Pilate being the the secular leader. We also know that Jesus was born sometime between 7 B.C. and 5 B.C. And we know that Herod died in 4 B.C. And that he had all the baby boys killed who were two years of age and under. And so for the oldest that Jesus could have been, you take 7 B.C. as his birth. Remember there's no zero, so you go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. And so you take 6 and you add it to 36. And so at the oldest, Jesus was 42. Now some who promote an older age for Jesus say, remember how the Pharisees said to him on one occasion, you're not yet 50 years old and yet you want to instruct us. People say it would be odd for a crowd to say about somebody who was only 30 or in their early 30s, you're not yet 50. It would be more likely that they would say you're not yet 40. But scholars have also looked at when the 14th of Nisan fell on a Friday because we know that that's the date and the day of the week when Christ was crucified. The answer to that question is 30 A.D. and 33 A.D. Those are the two most likely dates. Perhaps most now lean towards 33 A.D. 
And so Jesus was probably somewhere around 37 to 39 years of age. 38 is as good an estimate as any. If you take 6 B.C. as his birth, then add 33 A.D. as his crucifixion. Again, remember you go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., meaning it's not 6 plus 33, but rather it's 5 plus 33. Even if you go with the earlier date of 30 AD when he was crucified, Jesus would have been 34 or 35 at the youngest. So now I guess I've blown not only Christmas for you, but also Easter. Because remember how I said at Christmas there were probably more than three wise men. We can't say three wise men just because they presented three gifts. There was probably a a host of wise men. Well, today, as we see the events of Palm Sunday, we will learn how God seldom works according to how we think God should work. But folks, He works beyond our expectations. You know, man usually thinks of the moment at hand, but God doesn't. God works with eternity in mind. Man thinks of his life right now. Man thinks of his comfort right now. But God thinks of his redeeming purpose for all of eternity. God has bigger things in mind, and I'm glad that he does. That's what we're going to see here as well. To me, that's one of the greatest lessons we take away from the events of Palm Sunday. We tend to want relief from our immediate woes. But God came to give us relief for all of eternity. In other words, you and I run the danger of being terribly nearsighted. We want God to fix all of our messes right now. God, why won't you intervene in my life right now? Why won't you do in my marriage or in my family or in my children or grandchildren or in my work life or or with my boss? Why won't you fix everything in my life right now? And that's how we live. One of the hardest things to understand sometimes is how God doesn't do things on our timetable. God is seldom early but never late. Amen? And God's purposes are bigger. And we need to understand that. Well, as we look at the events of Palm Sunday, we see that it was a great day, a day of celebration. And yet, strangely enough, it was also a sad day, a day of great contrast. Here the disciples are, here the crowd is shouting, Hosanna, which means save us now, save us now. And yet, here's Jesus weeping. First of all, I want you to note with me today that God's plans are infinitely greater than our plans. God's plans are infinitely greater than our plans. I love what the Lord tells us in Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55 verses 8 to 9, God says, For my thoughts 
are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And that's certainly true in the events of Palm Sunday. As we look at these events, first of all, we see all of the preparations being made. Jesus has been in and around Jericho, and in Jericho, he met a little man by the name of Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? He was a tax collector, a chief tax collector, and he was small in stature, so the Bible says that he climbed up in a sycamore tree because he wanted to be able to see Jesus. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. And somewhere in the midst of that, day Zacchaeus was saved he came to faith in Jesus Christ at the end of that story Luke tells us the theme of his gospel Luke 19 10 that Jesus had come to seek and to save that which was lost and so again we see that Jesus is on a mission that is much more comprehensive than the people of the day realized. Jesus is nearing Jerusalem. He, he gets to Bethany and then to Bethpage. And as he does so, he sends two of his disciples on up ahead to make arrangements for his triumphal entry. What they're to do is they're to fetch a donkey. Now, a donkey was an animal fit for a king to ride in Jesus' day. A donkey was symbolic at the time of a king coming in peace. For instance, in 1 Kings 1.33, when King David had his servants anoint Solomon king, David told the servants to place Solomon on his donkey. But something bigger is taking place. You see, this is the fulfillment of prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, in Zechariah 9.9, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so they go on up ahead. They make all of these preparations. And then we see a time of celebration breaking out. The, the people understand the symbolism of what all's going on. And so they begin casting their garments in the pathway of Jesus. Again, an Old Testament image comes to mind. When Jehu becomes king, 2 Kings 9.13 tells us that garments were cast before him. It would be very similar to our practice today of how we say roll out the red carpet for somebody important. That's what they were doing. John tells us that they were also casting palm branches. The branches were a symbol of peace and deliverance. The palm had been a symbol on the coinage 
of the time of the Maccabean revolt when the Jews had overthrown Antiochus IV Epiphanes of Syria. When they had overthrown him, this was during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so folks, what I want you to understand is there's no misunderstanding about what is going on in our text today. You put all these images together uh, of a king riding on a donkey, palm branches being spread, garments being spread. And what is going on is that Jesus is presenting himself to Jerusalem as their rightful king and everybody would have understood that how wonderful it must have been to have been in the crowd that day all the preparation that's been made all the celebration that's going on and yet in the midst of it all we see lamentation we see the Lord Jesus weeping you see, as the road from Bethpage over the Mount of Olives, as it, as it opens up, those of you who have been to Israel know, as that, as that pathway opens up, as that road opens up, you have a spectacular view in front of you of the entire city of Jerusalem. And as Jesus saw that, he wept. Now how unusual that must have been that day. Here's the joy of the crowd. Here's the shouts of Hosanna. Lord, it's your coronation day. And here he is weeping. Seems strange on the purpose, on the surface. We'll get to that later. Folks, what we have going on here in Luke chapter 19 is misplaced expectations on the part of the people. The Jews were fully expecting that Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem. He was going to gloriously deliver them from the oppressive government of Rome. And he was going to set up the throne of David. And he would be the new David who would reign over an earthly kingdom from Jerusalem from then on. Even Jesus' disciples had these notions. And that's why when Jesus had told them that he was going to Jerusalem to die, remember Peter said, no Lord, that will never happen to you. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, you are, he called him Satan. He said, you are minding the things of earth, not the things of God. They're expecting war to break out. They're expecting a war to break out with Jesus coming forth as the ruler. Jesus is coming to secure a bigger kind of peace. His actions even showed this. For a king to ride on a donkey, if a king came riding on a stallion, it was time for war. If a king came riding on a donkey, it was time for peace. But again, God's got a bigger purpose in mind here. You see, before there can be peace on earth, there has got to be peace between men and God. And that is what Jesus is coming to secure. 
man thinks of today. Man lays up his treasure on earth. He's worried about his food for the day. He's worried about the clothes on his back. He's worried about the money in his bank account for tomorrow. Man is worried about all of his possessions on this earth. He's worried about his life in the here and now. He thinks of today and because of that all they could see was they wanted to be rid of Rome. They were tired of Rome ruling over them. And so they see that it's time for them to be defeated and Jesus to be their new king. That's what they're after. But God is thinking of the eternal. Folks, it's not that God doesn't care about the temporal. He does. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I tell you, you don't need to be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. The pagans run after all these things. You can know that my heavenly Father will provide for you. He does care about the temporal. But he knows that the most pressing need on your heart and my heart is first of all to be right with God because like Jesus said on another occasion, what is it going to profit a man if he should gain the whole entire world? And lose his own soul. Think about that. You're going to live for 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, maybe 100 years. In light of eternity, what is that? It's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. It's less than that. It's nothing. What if you get everything your heart desires in 70 years, 100 years, whatever the Lord gives you, and yet you go out into eternity without God for millions and millions and millions of years, never ending, you spend eternity without God, what's it going to profit you in the long run? Absolutely nothing. And God knows that. Jesus was thinking of the larger need of man. Galatians 4, 4 says, In the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So again, God's plans are infinitely greater than our plans. Secondly today, I want you to see that God's holiness is infinitely greater than man's attempts to save himself. Find with me Isaiah 53 for a moment. Isaiah 53, wonderful passage in the Old Testament. Beginning at verse 3, Isaiah says... He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth 
The cross is at the center of God's ways. Jesus came to die on a cross and reconcile us to God and give us a bigger peace, a more pressing peace, a more urgent peace. Isaiah says he was despised and forsaken of men. Think of all the times in the Gospels that men turned against him. I think of how the Pharisees said of him on one occasion that he was doing everything he was doing by the power of the devil. Could you imagine anybody accusing the Lord Jesus of that? And yet they did. Even his own siblings didn't come to believe in him until after the resurrection. He was despised. He was rejected. Remember when he said in John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me, he's got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. They didn't understand what he meant by all that. And the Bible says that the multitudes were offended by that and many turned away from him that day. He was despised. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You go through grief, you go through rejection, guess what? Jesus has been there. He knows all about it. Look beginning at verse 4. The picture becomes clear because he was to blame for none of it. None of his suffering was because of his own sin. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Where are we in this picture? Verse 6. We're all like sheep who have gone astray. We've, we've turned our own way. Given a choice in the matter. What do all of us do? All of us go our own way. We transgress the laws of God. And we sin. We commit sins of omission. And we commit sins of commission. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And we've transgressed His laws. Direct steps of disobedience. Folks, that's the problem with humanity. That's my problem. It's your problem. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Aren't you grateful for that? I'm very grateful for that. Substitution. All through the Bible we see that a substitution had to, be, had to be made to deal with sin. All of those lambs that were slaughtered, their bloodshed, they, they, they had to give up their life because of sin. And yet all of those lambs, that was an imperfect sacrifice. And because they were imperfect... As the writer of Hebrews says, they had to be offered again and again and again. But all of those sacrifices pointed forward to that perfect sacrifice that would be made in Jesus. The sacrifice to end all others. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, he's not going to just cover your sin temporarily. He's the one, he's the Lamb of God who's going to take away your sin. Deal with it in a final and a complete way. 
That's what he did. And he took it silently. During multiple illegal trials throughout the course of that night that he was arrested. He never defended himself. Pilate had to end up saying, I find no basis for a charge in this man. He was innocent. The authorities knew it. Folks, they knew it. And yet he never tried to defend himself. Do you know how hard that must have been? What do we naturally want to do? We naturally want to defend ourselves. But he didn't. The writer of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Did it For the joy of the pain and the suffering? No. But the joy of knowing what his death on the cross would accomplish for us, that it would reconcile us to a holy God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He never opened his mouth. When he was arrested in the garden, Peter went to cut off that soldier's ear. And and Jesus healed the man. And, And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Peter, put up your sword. Don't you realize, Peter, don't you realize that I could call 12 legions of angels who would come and deliver me? And yet he didn't. He was innocent and he never opened his mouth. Like a lamb before its slaughterers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. God cares that much. Have you ever stopped to think about that? God cares that much. First Peter 3.18 says, The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And the Bible goes on to say in 1 Peter 5.7, We can cast all of our care upon him because he cares for us. He cares. And he knows that all of your attempts to save yourself, everything you and I would try to do to save ourselves, would not work, would not reconcile us. He came to do what only God could do. He came to offer that sacrifice that would satisfy the holiness of God. He cares. God's holiness demanded a perfect sacrifice. Well, thirdly, I want you to see that man's invitation is to come to Christ who's the way, the truth, and the life. Look again at verse 41 of Luke 19. Verse 41 says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus wept because he knew that they were going to reject him. And because of that, not only would they forfeit peace with God and fail to gain eternal life, but they were also going to end up destroying their own city. 
Jesus knew that they were going to keep on pushing back against the Romans. They were going to resist the Romans and resist the Romans and resist the Romans and rebel against them to the point that finally in 70 AD the Romans came in. Well, several years before 70 AD it climaxed in 70 AD. Rome responded by sending Titus with, with the Roman army in and they totally decimated the city. Titus apparently told his troops to exercise some degree of moderation. But the army was so angry at the Jewish resistance that their attacks became unbelievably brutal. According to one account, whether we can actually depend on it or not, Titus, seeing all of the destruction that his army was doing to Jerusalem, threw his arms up toward heaven and looked up and said, Dear God, forgive me for this. I never intended butchery of this degree. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that 600,000 Jews, women and children included, were brutally butchered to the point that in a, in a city no bigger than Jerusalem, 600,000 people who had been trapped up inside, when Rome finally went, broke, uh, built uh, ramps over the walls and went into the city, they butchered people to the to the degree that it said that blood was running through the streets like a creek. 600,000 people butchered. They destroyed the city, destroyed the temple. It's what Jesus was talking about in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, when the disciples said, oh, look at this temple, look. And Jesus said, I tell you, there's coming a day this temple's not going to be here. Every stone is going to be thrown down. And that's exactly what happened. Massive loss of life and of property. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They'll surround you. They'll hem you in on every side. And they'll tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they'll not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Sad. Jesus weeps over the city because of their unbelief and what he knows their unbelief is going to do. Look again at what he says in verse 42. Would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. He had come to offer them that peace on the cross. And yet they were going to reject him. And crucify him. They they couldn't see the Messiah dying on the cross. He said because of that. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Folks what happens when we reject Christ? Blindness happens. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about here. They're rejecting him and his purposes and why he had come in his first advent to die for them on the, on the cross that they might be forgiven and reconciled to a holy God. And they would not accept that. And Jesus said, you're blind to it and a further blindness is going to happen even. It's just like us. Just like men and women today when they reject Christ. They refuse to come to Him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. And multitudes reject Him today. And what happens is a spiritual darkness. And then unless that condition changes, an even greater destruction is going to happen to them one day. You see, what happened to Jerusalem is a snapshot of what happens to each of us, spiritually speaking, if we reject Jesus and God's purpose is to save us. There's nothing left but utter destruction. Man tries to go his own way. He tries to save himself. He tries to offer his own solutions up. Just like they thought they could do. And all it was going to do was bring further heartache. I wonder if I could be talking to somebody here this morning that you still believe this lie that somehow or another you can be made right with God through good deeds or whatever it is. I guarantee you, if we went out on the streets of Concord this afternoon and interviewed people about what it takes to go to heaven one day and be at peace with God, you would hear over and over again people say something like, if you end up with more checks in the good column than the bad column, then maybe you're going to make it. If you live a good life and do what's right and love your neighbor, maybe you'll make it to heaven. And they reject everything that the New Testament tells us about the way of salvation. They reject the Lord Jesus. If they continue in that, utter destruction. I wonder if I could be talking to somebody this morning who's in danger of that. The saddest part of all here is, look at what he said in verse 44. You did not know the time of your visitation. The word for time that he uses here is not chronos time, calendar time, but kairos time. A special moment of opportunity. Here was Jesus in their midst and yet they couldn't see who he was and what he'd come to do. They miss their kairos moment. What about us? What about you? Are you missing your kairos moment? You're in church this morning. We've read the Bible. You're fortunate enough to be in a a nation where we can still, for now, preach the gospel. 
You can have a Bible on your lap. You can hear the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. In that sense, he's in your midst. He's in your midst through the power of his word and the power of his spirit. This is a kairos moment for you. And yet, you turn your back on him. It would be my prayer this Palm Sunday that nobody here would go down that road. Don't miss the time of your visitation. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, Behold, today is the day of salvation. Today. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as they did in the Old Testament. And they face destruction. Recognize the time of God's visitation in your life. Your opportunities to believe on Him today and follow Him and see what He can do in your life. It's beyond anything you could imagine or think. Don't miss it. God is not here to fix all your broken things by the end of today. He might, but he might not. In fact, he probably won't. But he's here To deliver your soul, forgive your sin, and reconcile you to a holy God. And that's bigger than anything you and I could do for ourselves. Don't miss it. Would you bow with me in prayer? As you bow in prayer, let me talk to you a moment. Next time you face disappointment with God and think that He ought to do things in your life the way you want Him to, let the events of Passion Week be a reminder to you that you really do not want your way above God's way. I want you to remember this week that God is for you. He really is. He suffered and he died for you, the just for the unjust, that he might bring you to God. And so today I want you to remember where your real peace comes from. It comes from Jesus hanging on a cross, shedding his blood in order to forgive you and reconcile you to a holy God. Father, I pray that each of us would embrace the good news of the gospel. That you sent your Son to be our Savior. Lord, I pray that other expectations in our lives would not blind us to what Christ came to do. Lord, I pray that if even one is here today who doesn't know Christ in a personal way, that they would not miss their Kairos moment. 
for others who are sitting here dealing with things in their lives and maybe they're, they're disappointed because you haven't worked in a certain way. God, I pray that they would not turn to bitterness, but that they would accept the fact that your ways are higher than our ways even when we don't understand you're at work and you're accomplishing bigger purposes. Help us to see that. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.